This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Do you get your news from John Stewart? Do you know the meaning of the word truthiness? If so, you are not alone. Fake news has been around for a long time, but these days, TV satire shows like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report inform the way we think like they never have before. We've all heard the claim that younger people get the majority of their news from Jon Stewart. And whether or not you believe that, and whether or not you think it's a bad thing, it speaks to the power that these shows have in our media-soaked world. So how did this happen? What exactly is going on? And what does all this mean about who we are? If you've wondered about these questions while reading The Onion over your morning coffee, you're also not alone. Academic researchers have been exploring the modern television landscape and looking closely at the emergence of satire TV as a powerful cultural force in recent years. And they've found that the combination of the rise of cable TV, the 24-hour news cycle, and the ubiquity of pundits, niche marketing, and lots of other factors have led to the unique situation in which we find ourselves today. Jonathan Gray is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. In the past, we've spoken with him about The Simpsons and about fan culture. His latest project focuses on TV satire. Along with Jeffrey Jones and Ethan Thompson, he's the editor of the book Satire TV, Politics and Comedy in the Post-Network Era. That's out from NYU Press. In that book, Gray and others look at the rise of satire TV, the media landscape it's a part of, and what it means in our culture today. I spoke with Jonathan Gray in our studios. Jonathan Gray, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. It's good to be back again. So your story in this book starts with the rise of cable TV and the decline in the importance of networks. Give me that context. You used to have originally three networks, and the audience was pretty much divided between the three networks. And so anything that went on in those three networks, particularly in prime time when many people were assumed to be watching, anything that went on had to in theory, be acceptable for everyone who was watching. Um, And so you had a a lot of television that was, as people have called, sort of lowest common denominator, but also it it sort of had to be clean. It it couldn't be too edgy. Uh, Networks didn't want to get a whole lot of uh, objections. Now, there are obviously some great exceptions, All in the Family being one, and the 70s sort of uh, marked a a sort of wave of of resistance against that. Uh, But still, what, what ended up happening, I think, when you had more networks, first through Fox, but then also through WB and UPN, was that they needed to get a sort of character for themselves. And they realized that they couldn't compete with the networks on their own territory. And so they tried to sort of find a little niche audience. And so Fox tried to be younger, hipper, and uh, a little more sort of off the cuff. And so that gave us The Simpsons. And then The Simpsons was remarkably popular and it did really well. And I think it created a a sort of beachhead for, for good satire on American TV in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And then you had a lot of uh, cable outlets, and some of them started uh, playing along too, and particularly Comedy Central with uh, with um, South Park. Then sort of realized the the gold mine that satire could be, and and you know in future years came up with the Daily Show and so forth. And we had we've had other channels sort of get in on it. And I think what we now see is a lot of channels that they make their money by addressing a very specific audience. And so if a lot of old people are writing in and complaining about. Comedy Central. Well, Comedy Central don't really need to care because that's not the audiences they're selling to their advertisers. That's not who they're going after. And so I, I think that sort of insulated some programmers from some of the, the previous concerns and they could start to get a little more edgy. 
So give me the timeline and tell me what some of the larger trends are at work in that whole situation. I mean, as I said, I think one of the key things is is Fox realizing that they wanted to go to after a youth demographic. And often in, in TV parlance, youth demographic means more edge. And so we had In Living Color, we had Married with Children, we had uh, The Simpsons. And so I, I think, you know, what we're looking at there is in the sort of the mid to late 80s as Fox starts to pick up. Uh, that's one of the, the key sort of landmark moments. And then I, I think the, the success of The Simpsons is massive. I mean, our, our subtitle says in, in the post-network era, but uh, we could have just as easily called it in the post-Simpsons era, that I think that The Simpsons really uh, lay down the gauntlet. And so then what you have is sort of in the mid-90s, you then get South Park. Um, and so at least in American television, I think then the sort of mid-90s picks up. And then I think off television, we have The Onion. And then, in, you know, when, when Jon Stewart takes over at, at The Daily Show, I think we then kick into a, another whole era, and, and particularly then when Jon Stewart almost single-handedly kills CNN's crossfire and then becomes the sort of the media personality of the year in 2004. Uh, and then following in his footsteps, you have Stephen Colbert with the, the White House Press Correspondents' Dinner in 2006. And so we're, we're in, in good high time for, for uh, satire right now. Before we go on, we should probably define our terms. What are you talking about when you talk about satire TV? Give me a definition. For the satire first, I think sometimes people confuse satire and parody, where parody is sort of attacking a type of form and the way in which something is presented. Satire is actually attacking the message. But also sometimes people attribute satire when all something is doing is being playful. Uh, George Test, who has this book on satire, sort of says that the, the four things that satire needs to do is it needs to make someone laugh. It needs to be playful, but that also it needs to be aggressive and there needs to be judgment. I think sometimes those last two things are missing. Sometimes we, we see things that are playful. For instance, there might be a little bit of a political element to them. And I would judge those political humor. But for it to be satire, there actually has to be some judgment and there has to be some form of aggression. There has to be not necessarily sort of, you know, full on aggression, but there has to be a sense that when you are watching, you know that the person who created this is passing judgment and is angry about something. There is some kind of statement being made uh, when we have satire. And so it's it's not just political play. It's there's actually something serious going on. And so then, you know, by nature, satire TV is TV that works with that mode. We find satirical moments in other TV programs. But what we found interesting as the three of us and then with the the other uh, co-authors, too, is the degree to which uh, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, we've actually seen a genre of satirical TV. And that's why we call it satire TV as a specific genre. So what are the sort of flagship examples of satire TV and what do they have in common? Obviously, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The Colbert Report, Chappelle's show when it was on, Saturday Night Live very occasionally, Tina Fey brought real satire, Lil Bush, That's My Bush was on for a short amount of time. Those are the sort of prime American examples. There are some wonderful ones around the world. In the book, particularly, we look at Brass Eye, a, a wonderful one by a, a British satirist called Chris Morris. And then uh, we look at a Canadian show, uh, This Hour is 22 Minutes, which then gave birth to Rick Mercer, who uh, had his own show called Rick Mercer Report. Uh, so those are some of the, the key ones. So what do those all have in common? Uh, what do they all have in common? Uh, I think they all pass judgment in some degree. I think that the people who are writing these scripts and the people who are performing them, between them, there's something that they what they want to say. 
they're not just playing around, although sometimes that's a huge part of what's going on. I mean, if you look at John Stewart, he's a, he's brilliant at, at playing, but then he gets serious at some points. And I, I think anyone who's watched The Daily Show has certainly seen moments where the joking is put aside. In fact, there are moments where he's not satirical at all. He's just angry. But that then bleeds into a, a sort of a, a more sort of satirical tone whereby some form of political judgment is being made. And indeed, that was what we were particularly interested in here with this book is political satire, not so much social satire. I mean, The Simpsons can do some wonderful political satire, but by and large, it's more at the level of social satire, observations about how life goes about. But once it starts to look at the political system, political figures, and once there are specific judgments being made that actually go back to and point the finger at particular people and particular policies, that's when we're looking at the sort of prime realm of, of satire. And that's what I think all those shows do um, or, or can do at, at points. When did this particular type of TV start to emerge and what were some precursors to it that we could see on network TV? There's always been satirical moments on on uh, network TV. So um, TW3 or That Was the Week That Was is a... Is a um, example that people quite often point to. Um, the Smothers Brothers, um, indeed, the Smothers Brothers even have their own sort of active conspiracy theory that follows about how they uh, got kicked off the air and that this was actually a presidential directive and so forth. So they were clearly doing something that people thought was uh, good and politically active. We also had, uh, you know, the early run for president, which one of the chapters uh, looks at by Pat Polson. And so we we have some pretty good sort of early examples. All in the Family, uh, very good social satire. Uh, Maud, and, and so that opened the door f- to some for some good political satire. So there were precursors. I, I think the, the sort of first show that really just adopted it outright in terms of political satire that I could point to would be The Daily Show, though, the, in, in the sort of modern era. On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you're listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Jonathan Gray. Gray's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he's one of the editors of the book Satire TV, Politics and Comedy in the Post-Network Era. That book's out from NYU Press. Let's get back to that conversation. Presumably every era has its own sort of popular forms of political criticism, or you hope that it will. Why has satire TV become so culturally important in our current era? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many answers to that. I, I think one of the things that's helped it is the Internet because comedy works really well on the internet. Comedy is quite often broken down into sort of jokes or little bite-sized pieces. And so particularly, you know, before bandwidth started to get better and and so when you were circulating clips, they pretty much had to be one or two minutes. Uh, You couldn't put, you know, a serial drama. You, You wouldn't say to someone, hey, dude, you have to watch this entire season of The Wire. Click here. Whereas, you know, wasn't it wonderful what John Stewart said last night was something? Uh, and so first you get the sort of click here sort of bonus that helps it. Uh, but also it, it's just, you know, comedy works really well in, in everyday conversation. It, it's it's a way sometimes for us to talk about politics when we might be a little skittish otherwise. You know, there's the old thing about don't talk about politics and, and religion. Well, when you talk about politics, 
because you're talking about something that was said on The Daily Show, it provides you a little bit of a shield. It allows you to get something onto the table that perhaps if it was your comment or your criticism might seem a little more garish and, and you might be a little less socially acceptable. And so I think that sort of started to allow a lot of uh, discussion about um, politics in, in some places that it wasn't happening normally. Um, and, and so I think a variety of sort of factors, those two among them, came together to mean that uh, comedy was this sort of battering ram that got politics into the lives of a lot of people who also, let's face it, a lot of the other genres that talk about politics on TV and in other forms of the media do a really bad job of addressing, you know, everyone. There's lots of complaints about why aren't young people watching the news? And we often make this complaint as though it's young people's fault. Well, if you want to know the answer to that, please turn on MSNBC or Fox News or so forth, and you'll see a bunch of old white guys yelling and complaining and talking as though everyone knows what they're talking about. And it's a big insider's club. And a lot of people watch that. They get turned off. They don't want anything to do with it. Um, comedy became a way to actually grab someone's attention and perhaps show them, cut to the issues that they actually care about, get rid of all the sort of, you know, massive anger and screaming at the microphone um, and screaming at each other and so sort of inside baseball talk and present it in a way that's very sort of accessible to people. Uh, that people would, would listen to and think, yeah, I, I care about that, uh, and that would invite them in too, and so that they felt that they could contribute and that they could actually be part of the discussion rather than just sitting there and being the endless passive consumer, which a lot of news wants us to be. It seems like also the development of cable TV could have contributed to the development of all this satire because it has helped news to become much more sort of Crossfire-esque Oh, yeah. It gave a lot more for us to uh, to make fun of. You know, I mean, we've dedicated our book to uh, to it. I think the dedication reads to W and inspiration to satirists and satire scholars everywhere. You know, the, the George Bush era was a wonderful era for satire because there was just so much to satirize. And similarly, when you have cable news of the variety that we, we've seen in, in recent years, it's easy. It's like, you know, shooting fish in the barrel there. How can you not go after Bill O'Reilly? Uh, Bill O'Reilly screams out for a, a Stephen Colbert. Now, it's also become a lot harder to get news from the center as opposed to trying to average out the opinions of two people who are completely diametrically opposed. And that makes it a lot more difficult to enjoy news. Exactly. And, and that's, again, where I think sometimes political satire can be much more honest because, you know, one of the games that a lot of these cable news broadcasters play is trying to convince you that they're not really biased. You know, Bill O'Reilly really is a centrist, so he likes us to believe. And occasionally, you know, one day out of 100, he'll pick a liberal issue and champion it just so that we can believe that he really is. Well, you know, no one's really fooled by that, are they? And yet he's trying to pass it off on people. And so are other broadcasters. I think one of the big differences is that satire is very honest about where it's coming from. Satire doesn't try to pretend that it, it, it's going to give you some objective account because it's comic, because it's only giving you part of the story. It's not offered to you in the frame of objective truth. It's offered to you in the frame of here's a resource that you might want to use. And so I think that's something that a lot of audiences have responded to because it, it, it treats them as adults rather than as sort of, you know, students sitting in classroom who should be taking notes. I have to say, reading this um, and sort of being a member of the key demographic that these things <laughs> are all aimed at, it seems like it's possible that 
uh, satire TV is something that could only be as influential as it is now because irony is, to some degree, sort of the language that we speak. What would you say to that? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've certainly, if The Simpsons was was important for ushering in uh, satire to a certain degree, it was also one of the, the first key shows to just sort of revel and roll around in nine million different types of irony in five seconds. And uh, I think as a coping mechanism that a lot of us deal with for a world that in so many ways is is so screwed up and with globalization comes the awareness of of more things screwed up around the world that we didn't know of you know last year and so forth uh one of the coping strategies is, is snark it's irony it's it's making sort of offhand comments uh trying to sort of keep the chin up. Um, indeed, th- in this respect, that's where I think all of us uh, contributing this book differ from. There are a lot of people who see satire as, as problematic because they see it as inherently negative. While it takes a negative tone, I think ultimately there's a positive aspect to it because it's about trying to keep the chin up. It's about trying to sort of find a way to continue and deal with you know, all these problems that are around you rather than just sitting down and, and surrendering yourself. So I think there is always that sort of element there. And, and so I think it's a sort of positive form of irony. It's, it's using irony and, and snark to sort of try and, and get somewhere. So you feel it's like a constructive way of getting people to continue to engage? Yeah, I think it's very constructive. I, I think critics who, who suggest that it's all about cynical remove, inevitably that will be true with some viewers. Uh, but what I found for instance, with my first book where I did audience research with viewers of The Simpsons is that these were very politically active viewers in many cases. And they found The Simpsons, you know, gave them a way to sort of a time out, let's laugh at this and then go back into the trenches. I found very little evidence to uh, support the sort of critical ideas that that satire is, is just sort of removing people from things. I mean, let's bear in mind too that often the where we hear this criticism that satire is negative and cynical and nihilistic, where we hear that most often is from the news. And that's because the news is threatened by satire. The news is looking at satire and seeing, wow, people actually are engaging with that and caring about it and talking about it the way that we want them to talk about us. And so it seems that there's a little bit, little bit more of a sort of competitive edge coming out from the news there than rather, rather than them actually sitting down and reflecting on why is it that people aren't engaging with them the same degree degree to which they are with, with satire? I want to talk about satire TV and how we think about politics. One of the writers in your book, this is Ethan Thompson in the article, mm-hmm. Good Demo, Bad Taste, yeah. says that satire can encourage people to care about important issues, not in a which team are you on kind of way, but in a what do I think about this kind of way. Yeah. And, and I mean, he says that in the in the context of discussing South Park, which is perhaps the best example for that and that. One of the common quotes I've heard for people with about South Park is, oh, they'll go after anyone. They're not on either side. I think the point is, is that South Park doesn't want to suggest that there's just two sides or rather that if there are two sides, both of them are wrong and that the answer lies somewhere in the middle. And I think sometimes that's where satire can be really helpful is to take us outside of that crossfire, Hannity and Combs, you know, good versus bad, black versus white, you know, sort of binaristic world that we often get thrown into by the news, wherein there's two sides of every opinion. And sometimes uh, where uh, satire is is most effective is when it tells us that there's a third side or there's another issue that actually points to both of the established parties, 
getting it wrong and that there's perhaps, you know, a sort of a rational center. And, and that's a, an argument that, that John Stewart's often made is that he's he said that he's not on either side. He's in the rational center. And that's what he represents. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That is this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Jonathan Gray. We've already sort of talked about this, but I will ask you to flesh mm-hmm. it out a little bit. What are some of the criticisms of satire TV? Well, I mean, one of the, the key criticisms that you hear a lot is that it's directed at an audience, namely young people, uh, that are watching satire TV instead of the news. And that therefore, because it's partial and because the jokes often require not giving you the full story, that it's dangerous because audiences are seeing this as a, as a supplement or instead of seeing it as a supplement, they're, they're seeing it as a substitute. Uh, there's also the, the criticism that's been made quite often that it leads to cynicism. It leads to people getting a sort of holier than thou approach to the media and to news and to politics, whereby they can stand back and note everything that's wrong with politics, but not actually feel they need to do anything about it. So, I mean, those are two of the most common criticisms that that you'll hear about satire TV. Um, And then there's also just the sort of the one of mode that some people just don't like serious issues being dealt with by comedy and feel that the two are fundamentally different things. And so that any time comedy is dealt with through uh, or anytime the serious elements of life are dealt with through comedy, there's a problem. We were sort of talking about this before we started talking mm. on the mics. How has satire in the U.S. historically differed from that of other countries? Uh, well, I mean, I couldn't talk about too many other countries. I would say that uh, Canada has a, a sort of rich history of, of satire. I think part of that, and, and uh, this gets talked about by one of the chapters in the in the book by Sarah Tinich, who looks at Canadian satire. Part of that speaks to the degree to which Canadians are sort of always at this, this sort of un, have this uncomfortable relationship to America that we sound like them, we look like them, uh, we know we, we walk amongst you. And yet we don't feel completely American. And so sometimes one of the, the key ways that Canadians have dealt with this is through a sort of ironic distance, uh, which then leads into some some strong forms of satire, of sort of satirizing the malfunctions and those things that are going wrong with, with, um, with American society. And that becomes a way of talking about national identity. And so it then also becomes something that national broadcasters can get behind. England also has a very long and, and austere history of satire that, of course, goes back to the print era several hundred years. You know, Jonathan Swift with, with wonderful satire and, and many other uh, instances since. And on TV, too, because it's a national broadcaster, through the BBC at least, and because there's not the same history of everything that makes it onto TV uh, being there because an advertiser accepts it and wants it there and is comfortable with it there. In England, you get things that that make their way onto TV that make people uncomfortable. And so there have been several examples of wonderful uh, satire in uh, British TV history uh, that has provoked lots of complaints that would never have made it onto American TV because those complaints would have been predicted. And they were predicted in, in England too, but someone felt, hey, we should put it on anyway and we can put it on anyway. There's a wonderful show called Brass Eye by Chris Morris that I, I think for many years was the most complained about 
show that had ever been on British television. And then I think Jerry Springer, the opera, trumped it in recent years. But it was very edgy. It attacked politicians in ways that the politicians did not like. And it made them look like fools in ways that got a lot of complaints, both from them and from the public. The thing with British satire, at least I can't speak to Canadian, Mm -hmm. is that it's a lot harder edge than Americans would ever accept in that it, at least with the Brass Eye program, and one of the reasons it was so controversial is because the guy who made it went out and caused politicians to make fools of themselves. Yeah, I mean, for instance, one of the great things that they did was they created this new drug called cake, which looked like a big cake of cheese. And then they created all these ludicrous side effects. And then they went out and asked politicians and and public figures to make very earnest what they thought were honest public service announcements about the horrors of cake. uh, So that, you know, one person, for instance, uh, spoke of how someone died from crying all the water out of their own body. Uh, We're told that the drug affects a part of the brain known as Shatner's bassoon, which helps with time perception so that this one Czech teen crossed the road. He thought he had a month to cross, but instead he got hit by a car. Ludicrous information like that would then be fed to politicians. And Morris's point was he was trying to look at how easily politicians and public figures would really just sell themselves out to sort of any cause as a way of getting on television. And he wanted to make them actually think about what they were saying. Uh, but to get to get back to your earlier point, yes, what it means is um, British satire sometimes can be pretty unrelenting. And there's a quality about it, which I think speaks to our national character and other national characters, which is that the British satire just goes all the way with it. Yeah, although, I mean, the, perhaps the closest example of that in America would be some of the stuff Michael Moore's done. People these days are more familiar with his his film stuff, but he did two really interesting TV shows, The Awful Truth and TV Nation, where he played around with some of his similar sort of antics. And I mean, his style, you can see it's it gets objected to a lot, um, which is not to say that Chris Morris wasn't objected to in, in England, because as I said earlier, he a lot of people complained about his show. Uh, but the sort of pariah that Michael Moore uh, became to many people, not just people who were against him politically, but people who thought that he was cruel, that he was mean, shows a degree of of a sort of expectation of, of pulling back sometimes in American satire. There's also that political agenda that Michael Moore had. Yeah, I mean, and he's very, uh, very clear about his political agenda. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as I said, I think all satirists have a political agenda. And if they try to tell you they don't, which they often do try to tell you they don't, they're lying or they're not good satirists. Only one of the two can be true. Uh, But at the same time, a lot of good satirists will let the audience do the rest of the work. I think what characterizes Michael Moore is that quite often he he really wants to do the work himself and he, he doesn't want you to leave with any confusion. What are some of the things in this book that sort of stood out for you as being the best moments of satire? Hmm, the best moments of satire. Well, I, I think we talked earlier about Brass Eye, which my own chapter looks at. I think when Chris Morris creates this this make-believe drug, uh, which, by the way, the, the script he gives to politicians giving their public service announcements includes the phrase, this is a made-up drug. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Um, and yet they still don't get it. I think that is fantastic. And some of the things that he gets people to say in that episode, but also in other episodes where, for instance, he creates this thing called hard electricity, which is created by poor 
electrical wiring in Sri Lanka. And so it's electricity falling out of the wires. And when it hits people, it, uh, it reduces them to a fraction of the size that they were. And so he talks, he gets one BBC reporter to talk about this poor young girl called Gita, who's only six inches tall or 12 inches tall. Uh, I think that's a wonderful moment. Um, I'd also look to uh, Sarah Tinich in her chapter looks at this wonderful uh, part of uh, This Hour is 22 Minutes, which was a Canadian show uh, called Talking to Americans, where Rick Mercer would go around to um, Americans, usually elite universities, because he, he wanted to look at how little knowledge there was of the rest of the world from the elites and would get people, politicians or people at these top universities to congratulate Canada on finally getting electricity or on uh, instituting a policy that would save the national igloo, which he explained was a, uh, a replica of the U.S. Capitol building made out of ice in which the, the Canadian parliament held court. That congratulation, by the way, came from um, Mike Huckabee when he was governor. So, I mean, that's another moment. And then I think two of the key moments have to be John Stewart's appearance on Crossfire um, and his recent work against CNBC as, again, sort of giant killing moments. Um, and then, of course, uh, Stephen Colbert's White House press correspondence dinner, I think, was important for two things. One, because it was real satire delivered with the president nearby, probably the only person who would dare to criticize the president in his presence during an eight-year tenure. And the press couldn't find it in themselves to laugh, showing the degree to which I think a lot of them had just sort of so completely gone over to the, the administration side that they, they couldn't find the, the humor to, to criticize it. Well, the book is Satire TV. It's dedicated to W. Jonathan Gray, thanks so much for coming in and talking. Thanks for having me. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend.